Good morning. I hope you all understand, uh, at, at least to some extent, what I'm about to say. This is always one of the high points of my week, is just getting to be with you all. Uh, this is a, this, we've got something good here, and this is a wonderful group of people, and I'm glad to be with you every Sunday morning, and this day is no exception. It's a good day to be in God's house. I'm excited about the word we're going to look at today, but first I want to talk about uh, what's coming up this week. Uh, Tuesday is Veterans Day. And this, of course, is an election year. We just got through with an election this past week, and I know it's an unusual one and a very contentious one. Uh, but just the fact that we're able to have a peaceful uh, way of deciding who governs our nation makes us unique in the history of the world. And we need to th give thanks to God for that freedom, but also, and primarily to God, but also remember the men and women who continue to defend our nation and keep us free, because freedom is, you know, I didn't make this up, freedom is not free. And we want to give them uh, as much credit and, and, and thanks as they deserve. And so right now I'd like to ask everybody here who has served in one of our military branches to stand so we can honor you. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You, your, your, your commitment inspires us and blesses us, and we, we are grateful for it. Right now we're in Acts chapter 24, Acts 24 uh, through 26, and we've gotten pretty cynical these days about a lot of things, including anybody who stands in front of you and says, trust me, right? Whether it's a politician, whether it's a, a football coach, whether it's you know, you're a young lady and you run into your boyfriend and he's eating dinner with some other woman and he says, well, we're just old friends, don't you trust me? I mean, we've gotten pretty cynical about that. And we can even be cynical about the idea of trusting God, trusting in Him. Remember, remember Paul, we, we're studying, of course, the life of Paul, if this is your first time with us or first time in a while. We've been in a series on Paul for quite a while now. And we saw how at one point he was in prison in Philippi, he and his friend Silas, and an earthquake happened that very night around midnight, and Paul and Silas were able to go free. That's kind of the short version of the story. But if you're not careful, you can get the mistaken impression that in the Bible, people like Paul experience miracles all the time. That anytime they wanted, they could just snap their fingers and God would drop a miracle on them. And that's actually not the case. And we see it in this story today. Last week, we saw how Paul went to Jerusalem, left behind his day-to-day -day work of planting churches and discipling new believers, and went to Jerusalem with a donation from all the churches to the Jewish believers. God led him. The Holy Spirit of God led Paul to Jerusalem, leading him knowingly into a trap where Paul was beaten, arrested, and thrown in jail. And this time, there was no earthquake. This time, there was no angel. This time, there was no miracle. Paul just sat and sat. And we saw him last week because of the threat of assassination, basically lynching. He was taken from Jerusalem to Caesarea by night. And that's where we find him at the beginning of this story. And, and, and Paul, we don't know this because we, we hear this from Luke's perspective, not from Paul's. Paul must have been thinking to himself, okay, Lord, when are you going to come through and set me free again like you did in Philippi? When, when is the miracle going to come? When is the answer to my prayers going to arrive? And some of you might be in that position right now. 
Some of you might be in a position of wondering, when is God going to show up and show me what to do? You've been praying for healing for quite a while, and the healing hasn't come. Your child started acting out a few years ago, and you thought it was just a phase, and you still don't have her back. Your marriage once was vibrant, and now you've been through counseling, you've been through weekend retreats, you've been through moments of prayer and tears and yelling and and crying, and, and you wonder if maybe it's never going to be good again. You lost your job, and everybody around you said, hey, when God closes a door, He opens a window, but all you see now is closed doors. You know, what, what you don't hear from popular preaching today is a lot of the Christian life is spent wondering what God's up to. We don't usually know exactly what He's doing or what He wants us to do. We don't always, in fact, we don't usually have perfect clarity on God's perfect will. So what do we do in those times? And that's what this message is about. As we look at Paul, Paul is physically safe in the jail in Caesarea. The people who wanted to kill him can't get to him. But they've come up with a new plan. They've hired an attorney, a Greek-speaking man named Tertullus, and he and the Sanhedrin come to Caesarea where the Roman governor Felix is stationed. And they come to charge Paul. Verse 2 of chapter 24 says, And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, Paul, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. You see how you begin with lots of flattery, right? That's how you handle someone like Felix. Verse 4, but to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. So the main charge that they're bringing is this guy's a troublemaker. I know he doesn't look like much, but he go, everywhere he goes, there are riots, there are protests, there are, there are uprisings, and he even has come to Jerusalem for, for the specific purpose of defiling the temple of God. Now, Felix is a Roman governor. He's not Jewish. He doesn't believe in the God of the Jews. He doesn't care about their religion, but he's also in charge of maintaining the Pax Romana, the, the law and order regime of Rome, where everything runs like it should, like clockwork. And so riots are out of bounds. Any, any uprising means that Felix could lose his job, and so nothing can cause a riot like defiling a temple. And so Paul speaks in his own defense, and he says the following three points. We won't read that section, but his three points are, number one, they're making all of this up. Nobody has heard me say anything disruptive. Number two, I came here not to cause trouble. I came here on a mission of mercy with funds that I collected with my own hands to bring to the poor of Jerusalem. Number three, the real reason they're angry with me is I'm preaching of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which you Governor Felix, you've heard about. Felix has been on the ground in Judea long enough that he's familiar with Christianity. And at Paul's uh, defense, he, he comes to understand, okay, this isn't actually a political idea. This isn't actually a criminal matter. This is more of a theological issue that these people are having. And he sends the Jews away and leaves Paul to stay. But he doesn't set him free. And we're about to find out why. 
verse 24 of chapter 24 says, After some days Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Paul was Baptist, so he had three points. Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So Paul gets caught up in the greasy wheels of politics. Because here's this governor, Felix, who has two different ideas in mind. On the one hand, he wants the people he rules over, the Jews, to send a good report of him to Caesar so that when he gets his next assignment, it'll be a good one. Actually, the opposite happened. The Jews actually sent a delegation to Rome and said, don't ever send us anybody like Felix again. He was horrible. The other thing that Paul experienced is not just that self-serving politicism, but also the corruption because Felix wants a bribe. And you and I might laugh and say, Paul hadn't had any money since he first came to know Christ. If he ever had it before, he sure doesn't now. But Felix, all he knows is he hears Paul say, I've collected money. And so he thinks, oh, Paul's Paul's friends have money. Maybe they'll come bail him out. Not even realizing Paul's friends don't have that kind of money. And even if they did, Paul wouldn't let them bail him out. But Paul is stuck because of corruption, because of politics, for two solid years. And you can imagine the frustration of being in prison, knowing you're innocent, knowing you should be released, and being called upon every so often and thinking to yourself, okay, today's the day I'm going to get released, or if not released, at least I'll have a chance to, to tell Felix about Jesus, and nothing ever happens. Nothing good comes of it. And you can imagine the frustration. Two years is a long, long time. I know, I know 20, 2020 sounds, seems like a long time. Make sure that doubled, right? This is what Paul has experienced. And then they get a new governor. Felix is reassigned. A new man comes in. His name is Festus, not the guy from Gunsmoke. Remember that? <laughs> um, but Festus comes in, and the first thing that happens, the, his, his Jewish uh, clients come to him, and they say, listen, Governor Festus, the first thing you need to take care of is this man, Paul. He's in your prison in Caesarea. He's got to be dealt with. He's a terrible person. Get him out of the way. And Festus is probably thinking, okay, this guy must be an assassin or a rapist or a a revolutionary. Imagine his surprise when he sees this kind of scholarly looking guy who looks like he's been through the meat meat grinder of life. And the Jews come again to him, and, and this time they have a plot in mind. They say, listen, since you don't really know what to do with this guy, why not move him down to Jerusalem and we'll make a judgment about him there? Because their plan is we're going to ambush the the caravan and kill Paul on the way. And Paul either hears about it somehow or he knows how they think because look at what happens next. Verse 9, but Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and be tried there on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed. 
to Caesar you shall go. Paul, for the second time, plays his Roman citizenship card. As a Roman citizen, he had the right to say, I don't want to be tried here in some provincial court. I want to be tried in Rome. And they had to obey it. And that's exactly what happens. And this becomes very key to our story later on and to Paul's destiny. Now, Festus is probably glad to get this case off his books because he doesn't know what to do with it, but he has a dilemma. He needs to know what to say to Caesar. He's sending him this prisoner. He's got to send a letter along that says, here are the charges against this man. Here's what I've learned so far. And frankly, he doesn't understand what's going on. He's fresh on the ground and doesn't know anything about Judaism or Christianity. But fortunately for him, along comes an unexpected visitor, Herod Agrippa, who is one of the uh, other local rulers uh, sponsored by Rome, you might say, a puppet of Rome. Because of his name, you probably understand, he's related to the Herods of the Bible. Herod uh, the Great was his grandfather, the man who tried to kill Jesus when Jesus was an infant. And Herod Antipas, the man who met with Jesus on the day of uh, Good Friday, is his uncle. So Agrippa comes with his wife, Bernice, also his sister. That's how the Herods rolled. Uh, Chapter 26, verse 24. And so they, they gather together. They get Paul out of jail again. And Festus says to Agrippa, I want you to tell me what this is all about. You understand these Jews better than I. And Paul comes and sees King Agrippa on one side, Festus on the other, the queen in the middle, and all their, uh, all their, what's the word? All their group. Yeah, there you go. Whatever you said. So all their group sitting there in all their pomp and all their finery. And Paul thinks, this is not, this is not my chance to get away. This is, this is my chance to share the gospel with powerful people. And so once again, he tells the story that we've heard two times already of his trip to Damascus all those years ago and how Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, and he saw the Lord risen and was converted. And in the middle of his presentation, verse 24 happens in chapter 26, and as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Felix, but I am speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all those who hear me this night, this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Now, if you don't already admire Paul, you've got to admire him for this. He's standing before men who could set him free, and he doesn't speak a single word in his own defense. He doesn't say, set me free. He doesn't say, this is an injustice. He doesn't say, if, if anything was true or right, it is that I should go and be set free today. He doesn't say any of that. On the other hand, he's standing before a man in Herod Agrippa who is one more terrible person in a long line of horrible people who have ruled over his nation unjustly. And yet Paul doesn't take the opportunity to take pot shots at Herod. All he's concerned about is the salvation of these people in front of him, and specifically Herod Agrippa. And it's been widely debated Herod Agrippa's response to Paul. Verse 18, I believe it is. 
when I was growing up, I, I grew up in a church that preached out of the King James Version, and, and this was one of my, my pastor's favorite stories. And so I heard this story over and over again. So I remember how that sounds in the King James. It says, almost persuadest thou me to become a Christian. And when I was a kid, I thought that meant that Herod was saying, I'm almost there. Paul, if you had just a little while longer, you'd get me over that line and I'd be a believer. But now I believe something different. I believe, and a lot of scholars believe, that Herod was being sarcastic. That he was saying, do you really think I'm sitting here in my royal robes, crown on my head, wife by my side, all these subjects bowing before me. You're standing there, a ragtag prisoner who obviously has been beaten up more than once. You honestly expect me to give up this for what you have? In such a short time, do you think you can make me make that decision? And Paul's response is so great. Don't you understand, King? In spite of appearances, I'm the one who has it all. You're the one who is lost. I wish, I wish that aside from these chains, I don't want you to be in prison. I don't want anybody hurting like I'm hurting right now. But aside from that, I wish everybody here had what I had. And friends, that's the attitude we ought to always have in response to someone whose salvation is in question. Now ask yourself, is that my attitude when I'm around someone who's not a believer in Jesus or whose salvation I don't understand whether they are a believer or not? That's the attitude we should have. I would to God that you would have everything that I have except my trials because I want you to have Jesus. That was Paul's attitude. And ironically, right after that, Agrippa tells Festus, you know, this guy should be set free. If he hadn't been appealed to Rome and we're, we weren't duty-bound to send him on that ship to Rome, we could set him free today. And when you, when you read that in Acts, you think to yourself, oh, Paul, why did you appeal to Rome? But Paul knew what he was doing. He'd been told by God already, you need to get to Rome. He'd been told by Jesus himself in a vision he had in the prison in Jerusalem, you will testify before me in Rome. So this is his destiny. He knows. Now, he didn't know at the time that he'd go to Rome in chains, but he also knows because he had written this a few years earlier in 2 Corinthians, when I am weak, then I am strong. So in chains or not, I'm going to Rome, and that's the good news. But let's go back, because next week we'll talk about his trip to Rome in chapter 27, the most action-packed chapter in the whole book of Acts. But for now, let's go back to that question. How do you cope when you're stuck? Paul's in prison. He's been in prison two years now. He's going to be in prison at least two more years. How do you cope when you don't know what God's up to and he, you don't know what he wants you to do? Fortunately, we have some of Paul's thoughts from this time. He wrote, well, in his time in prison from Rome, he wrote Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians, and Philemon. Some of you are OCD and you're really bothered that I said that in the wrong order, aren't you? Yeah. Um, but those four letters written from the prison in Rome, and, and we know there are two things that, that were on Paul's mind when he was in prison. Number one, don't miss the opportunity to grow. Don't miss the opportunity to grow. Some of you are familiar with the preacher John, John Piper. Several years ago, he was diagnosed with cancer. Fortunately, he came through it. But at the beginning of his cancer diagnosis, he wrote, Lord, don't let me waste my cancer. He wrote a long article. Don't let me waste my cancer, Lord. Whatever you want to teach me through this time, I pray that you would teach me. And that was the same sort of attitude the Apostle Paul had. In Colossians 4, 3 through 4, I told you a couple weeks ago, maybe last week, pay attention to the, to the prayers in the letters of Paul. This is one of them. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. In Ephesians 6, 19 through 20, a similar prayer. 
and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So Paul is in prison. He's in prison because he was too bold, and he's praying for more boldness. He's in prison because he preached a message that people didn't like. He's praying that God would help him to do a better job of preaching that message. He wants to grow while he's in prison. More bold, more clear in what he, in what he says. Here's another example. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Some of you are going to be familiar with this passage. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned. Remember those three words. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ or through him who strengthens me. So this last week, my son, Will, was running in the state cross-country meet for private schools. Uh, Up in Waco, he did a great job. Came five seconds from his personal best time. I was really proud of him. But he told me a funny story after the race was over. It's three, 3.15 mile race, so it takes a little while. And for a long portion of the race, he was trailing this other runner and just running a few steps behind him. Same guy, looking at the same backside the whole race long. And he's saying to himself, I need to pass him. I need to pass him. And finally, he, he just said, it's time. And he, he picked up his speed a little bit. And right when he came alongside the guy, he heard this kid say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then the kid took off. And I said, well, so did you catch him? And, and Will said, no, Christ strengthened him a little too much, apparently. And, and I said, well, you should have said, hey, kid, you're using that verse out of context. And he said, well, I didn't think of that. And I didn't have any energy to shout. And because Philippians 4.13 People use that all the time to say, oh, well, I'm going to run faster. I'm going to pass my chemistry test. I'm going to go in and tell my boss that he's a big fat jerk because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's not what that verse means. It's not an all-purpose, I can, you know, transform into a superhero verse. You just read it with me. What is it about? It's about contentment. It's about no matter what our circumstances We can have contentment. We can be happier in a time of sorrow than the wealthiest person on earth can be in all of their blessing. We can be more joyful in a time of pain than someone who is on top of the mountain can without Jesus. Why? Because Paul says, I have learned how to be content. Now, how did he learn it? Well, he learned it, first of all, because of the Holy Spirit inside of him. You can't learn that by going to a seminar or class or reading a book But I believe he learned it because he wrote the book of Philippians after several years in prison. I believe he learned it through that process of being locked up, of not getting what he wanted, of of not knowing what else to do. And so he said, Lord, I'm I'm complaining, I'm whining, I'm I'm angry, I'm, I'm upset. Teach me contentment. And God taught him. He wanted to grow. Don't miss the opportunity. One more example of growth. Philippians 1, 14 through 18. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now, this is hard to wrap our minds around, but listen to what Paul's saying. He's saying, since I've been locked up, 
there's a whole lot of preachers out there who are much more bold than they used to be. And some of them are, are saying, well, we've lost Paul, so I need to step up my game to make up for his loss. Others are saying, I never liked Paul, so I'm going to take advantage of him being out of the way to get more glory for myself as a preacher. I'm going to try to become known as the next best thing, or maybe even greater than Paul. Now, in the old days, Paul would have looked at that second category of preachers and said, you're not even a, a preacher of the gospel. You're, you're, you're preaching for your own self, your own glory. But now he's able to say, you know, they are preaching the true gospel, even if they're preaching it out of false motives. And as long as they're preaching the truth, even if, even if their motives are wrong, God's using them so I can rejoice. I can rejoice every time I see one of them lead someone to Christ, or every time I hear a report that their church is growing, that ought to be instructive to you and me here at First Baptist when we hear of other churches growing and, and reaching people for Christ. If they're preaching Jesus, we ought to rejoice. We shouldn't be jealous. We shouldn't be angry or envious. We should rejoice. Paul grew into that through his time in prison. Whatever you happen to be going through right now, your time of confusion, your time of doubt, your time of struggle, don't miss the opportunity to grow, to say to the Lord, Lord, now's a good time for, for me to submit to you in my own uh, foul temper, my own tendency to gossip, Lord, my, my laziness, my pride, my self-centeredness, whatever the case might be, change me now, Lord. Don't, don't waste this time of pain in my life. Second thing, we see from Paul's letters, he would say, don't stop serving others. Don't stop serving others. Paul couldn't do what he was good at. He couldn't do what he was called to do because he was behind bars. So he did the next best thing. You know what that is? He loved whoever was in front of him. He showed the love of Jesus to whoever happened to be there. One day, a young man came to him named Onesimus. Onesimus was the slave of a man named Philemon who was an elder of the church in Colossae, and he had escaped from his master. And somehow or another had decided, I've heard Paul is in prison in Rome. I'll go to him. Who knows why? Who knows what Onesimus was thinking? But in the course of their conversation and their time together, Paul behind bars and Onesimus there, Paul led Onesimus to faith in Christ. Forgive me, in Rome, Paul was actually in a rented house. He wasn't behind bars, but still in Roman custody, he happened to lead Onesimus to salvation in Christ. And then he wrote a letter to Philemon, Onesimus' master. He said, Send the, take this back to your master for me. So Onesimus had to trust Paul that he wasn't going back into slavery because the letter actually said, Philemon, here's your slave back, but I want you to, as a favor to me, treat him as a brother, not a slave. Set him free. Make him one with us. Make him equal to us because that's what he is now in Christ. And that's exactly what happened. You know how I know that? Because we still have the letter to Philemon in the Bible. If Philemon had said, stupid Paul, he can't tell me what to do with my slave, he would have thrown that letter in the trash and we would have lost it forever. So Paul changed two people's lives even while in Roman custody. Second, second story and then we're done. Philippians 4.22. Here at the end of the book of Philippians, here's, here's one of those parts of the Bible we usually just skip over when Paul is writing his greetings at the end of his letters, and so-and-so says thank you, and so-and-so says hello. Well, here you go. Verse 22 of Philippians 4. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Wait, what? 
All the saints greet you. We know that means holy ones. That means anybody who's a believer in Jesus, especially those of Caesar's household, the the Roman emperor, Nero, right? His prison guards, his clerks, his other assorted employees, some of those people are now part of the family of God. How can that be possible? Well, I don't know, and Paul doesn't say, but I strongly suspect that being in daily contact with someone whose philosophy of life was, I, I am all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some, that might have a little something to do with it that Paul has managed over the course of a couple of years to lead several people to faith in Jesus, not just Onesimus, but people who worked for the emperor. And don't you think that had some impact on the state of the empire? See, what you, when you don't know what to do, folks, if, if you don't hear anything else I say, take this with you. When you don't know what to do, when you have no idea what the will of God is, just love the person in front of you. Just Find a way to meet their needs in the name of Christ, to put them ahead of yourself in some way that glorifies God, whether that's your employer, whether that's a coworker, whether that's the person who's cutting your hair, whether that's uh, your in-laws, whether that's your next-door neighbor, your friend, even your enemy. Find a way to love that person, and you can't go wrong because that's what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? What was his mission? Jesus' mission wasn't complicated. It was difficult. It wasn't complicated. I just have to love these people. I just have to love them more than myself. I just have to love them enough to give up what I have so they can have it, and I'll take what they have so that they don't have to pay for it, and then they're free, and I'm punished, and salvation is won for the world. And that's what Jesus did. And every time we love someone in his name, we're following in his footsteps. It's not easy, but it's simple. Just love the person in front of you.